0: You're listening to a message from Victory Dumageddon. I want to tee off from what Mark preached. So, we've started a series called What Shapes Us. So, let me put it this way. Before we get to the text, allow me to explain a few things for a while. Here's basically what I want to establish. Every single one of us, in fact, every single person in the world, not just for Christians. Let me say this way. Every single one of us, every person has a confessional statement. Your words become your world. Let me explain that. When I say that every person has a confessional statement, it simply means that every single one of us, we grow up with a certain confession. Meaning to say, there's something that you keep saying that basically forms or shapes your world. Are you folks following? I'm not talking about manifesting money or finance. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm simply talking about or pertaining to the words that you keep repeating that basically forms and shapes your worldview. Let me explain it this way. I'm going to say something and this might not sound good, but nonetheless, I want to say, say, for instance, in the Philippines, at least people in Luzon, sometimes they would say things like when they're so upset with their life, with how things are going for them people would something say, or wake up in the morning and say something like, Hi, hey, nako, buisit na buhay na to. You know what I'm talking about, right? So I don't know how we say that in Bisaya. Medyo mas matalas yung mga Bisaya. Let's not go there. So what happens is, if you keep confessing, if you keep saying that your life is useless, lifeless, hopeless, that basically those words became your world. Halloween. I don't want to sound controversial, but if every single one of us know what's happening between Israel and Palestine, and if you're Palestinian and you grow up saying death to the Jews or death to Israel or free Palestine, that becomes your world, right? And the same way if you're a Jew and you say things like death to Hamas and stuff like that, that simply becomes your world. So every single one of us here has a confessional statement, all right? None of you here can tell me or prove to me that you don't have a confessional statement. have confession. The problem there is, or the good thing, and the problem there sometimes is, the words that you confess become your world. Right? So, having said that, as a church, specifically for this series called What Shapes Us, what we are journeying you into the next couple of weeks is, we're simply looking into our statement of faith. Coming from the miracle series, we've talked about miracles over and over again. So now, we want you to have a formative time the next couple of weeks, which started last Sunday. A formative time we're in, as a church, we have what we call our statement of faith. Say, for instance, you know, the people who come to me and tell me, Hey, Archie, I'm moving to the United States. I'm moving to Bulgaria or wherever. Um, can you help me find a church? So what I tell them is, here's what you're going to do. If there's no every nation church there. Let's look at the website of a certain church in that city, and let's not first look at what their songs are or who their pastor is, but what we need to look for into in their website is their statement of faith, All right. So what we're trying to do here is that we're trying to unpack to every single one of you, what our statement of faith is. We want you to understand what our confessions are as a church. Last week, we've started with the Word and the person of God. We've, you know, Mark preached on God, and we're going to look into something different. But let me say it this way, Scripture, as we start talking about our confession, Scripture is the standard for all matters of faith, conduct, and values. As a Christian, if you're so used to your horoscopes, you're so used to your social media, You're so used to so many opinions out there at the end of the day. If you call yourself a Bible-believing Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, if you're not just Christian by affiliation, if you're not just Christian by association, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, then it goes on to say that your scripture or the Bible that you have in your hand is the standard for all matters of faith, conduct, and values. And the right exegesis or the right interpretation of those texts will basically form your worldview. Are you folks following so far? You know what? If you ask me, it makes our life easier. It makes our life easier because if I encounter some troubling circumstances in my life, if I encounter some, you know, big questions in my life, my only question is: what does the Bible say about it? What is the opinion of God's word about it? What is the truth? That we can find in God's Word about our certain situation. So, I want to submit this to everyone. If you want to make your life so simple, then adhere to this. The Scripture is a standard for all matters of faith, conduct, and values. Where do you hinge your faith? The Scripture. Where do you hinge your conduct? The Scripture. Where do you hinge your values? The Scripture. It's basically as simple as that right now let's open our bibles for a while to genesis chapter 2 genesis chapter 2 please turn your bibles with me we will be reading from verses 4 all the way down to verse 17 if mark covered the confession of faith regarding god we're going to cover creation and fall creation and fall how we're going to squeeze that In 40 minutes, I don't know. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 to 17, it says here, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And... A mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of death from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Avila, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the river Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. All right, you'll have to bear with us the next few weeks because we're talking about our statement of faith, we're talking about our confession. So the manner at which we're going to approach this is we're going to preach and teach at the same time. All right? So if some details will bore you later, so I want you to understand it will remain to be beneficial for you. Let me look at verse one, look at this. It starts by saying that these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. So. I want us to understand that over and over again, in the scriptures, the words, these are the generations. What do you observe there? If you look at the words, these are the generations, just as an introduction, it's actually repeated over and over again. If I'm not mistaken, maybe 11 times in the book of Genesis. Now, every time you hear the word, these are the generations, it's actually an introduction for a new segment in God's word, at least in the book of Genesis. Right? So in this case, if you have this in Genesis chapter 2. It gives us a picture that this phrase right here basically gives us a picture that if it starts saying these are the generations, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, then Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 until Genesis chapter 2, verse 3 is actually just a prologue. So the real, the real first section of the book of Genesis of your Bible is actually this section right here. All right? This section right here. So I just want to say that. For us to understand this, here's another thing. Before crossing you know, from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, over and over again, you would see that in its original Hebrew, God was pertained to us, Elohim. All right? Beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, now he's called the Lord God, which basically means, or in its original Hebrew, is the word Elohim Yahweh. So it now starts shifting in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Everything now shifts to what? To the covenant name of God. Why? Because this is the time that God starts relating with men. All right? This is the time that God starts relating with men. Moving further, here's what it looks like because I want us to get into this as soon as possible. Because here's what it looks like. If you read Genesis chapter 1, you think about creation, you read Genesis chapter 2, read Genesis chapter 3, you think about creation, you think about how the Lord created everything, how the created order was formed in that sense. Here's basically a summary of this. Man was, alright, man was created in the garden under the authority of God. Think about this with me. Let's put it this way. Just have these words in your mind in the garden, actually placed in the garden, he was placed in the garden, in the garden under the authority of God. All right? So the real essence and purpose and beauty of the creation is supposedly man was in the garden under the authority of God. All right? Green Goldsworthy, who's an Australian biblical theologian, puts it this way. He starts talking about what is the kingdom of God? How does it look like? And here's a good definition that he can give all of us. He says, the kingdom of God is God's people, all right? God's people in God's place under God's rule. All right? Are you folks following? When you start thinking about the kingdom of God, we're talking about God's people, In God's place, so guess what? There is a specific place, supposedly, under God's rule, okay? Supposedly, once again. So the original intent of the Lord was something like that. The kingdom of God is basically pertaining to God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. So that's basically what, how I want to outline what we're talking about here, many of you, I bet, you folks already know what I'm going to be covering here. But nonetheless, because we're talking about a statement of faith, this is foundational and basic for some of you. But nonetheless, we have to what? Be redundant and we have to keep repeating all of these things. All right? Let me start with God's people. Look at this. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5 to 7. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God, had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. All right? So what do we catch here? This specific verse, verse 5, teaches every single one of us that there was no bush yet. I remember my brother, I have two older brothers, and when I was in Africa, they keep messaging me, and they keep asking me for photos. Hey, send us photos of Africa, send us photos of Africa. So I was like, I'm in the conference, you know? So what I did was I Googled, you know, lions eating zebras and all of these things. And I sent it and we were like, Whoa, what is this? I'm like, all right. But anyway, there was no bush yet because the Bible says because of two things, because of two, because of two reasons. There was no bush yet because there was no rain. That's one. And there was what? There was no man to work the ground right? There was no man to work the ground. So it tells us that creation was ordered that way. Creation was ordered that way. Look at verse 7. The Lord God had formed. Now in verse 7, skipping the verses now, it says here, now the Lord God formed the man. He formed the man and what was the material at which He formed the man with the dust. Like, dust. You know what I'm talking about, right? Out of the dust of the ground and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. So I don't know with you, I don't really have time. I would love to sit down and talk about your evolution and stuff like that. But you know, I think you know what I'm talking about, all right? So Bible is very clear that the Lord created everything, all right? So if you want to debate about this, you know, then you go and debate with God, all right? But nonetheless, this is what Scripture teaches us. That man was formed. Man was formed from the dust of the ground. And after that, the Lord breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Verse 15 says, look at this. The Lord God then took the man. He took the man and put him in the garden. So God creates man, God's people, God's person right here. And brought him to God's place. Catch it? He brought him to God's place. That's why, let me just segue for a bit. You know, when people say, like when wives would say, or women would say, Ah, you talagang ganyan ang mga Let men be because they're wild. They were created in the wilderness. It's true. Wives here, you know how wild your husband is at home, right? Like, they don't know where to put the glass. They just turn on the TV the entire time, stuff like that. So. It's good that we think of it that way, that man was created in the wilderness. But guess what? Remember, remember this, remember, man was not left in the wilderness. He was placed in the garden. He was placed in a place where there is order. All right? Where there, where man ought to experience a covenant. So we cannot actually make an excuse saying, ah, you know, man is swell. So just let him go and meet someone out there, even if he's married and stuff. Like, no, man cannot do that because they were placed supposedly, once again, in the garden under God's rule in a covenant with God. All right? So sorry, guys. Sorry, man. But that's the case. All right? So going back. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Now, here's what's interesting. I haven't studied Hebrew, but in Hebrew, the word "ground" and the word "man" actually sound the same. Alright? So it gives us a picture of that, you know, what? I don't know with you, but I would suggest that this should humble every single one of us. All right? This should humble every single one of us. At the end of the day, we are but mere dust. Pansinu ba yan? habang tumatanda tayo? Minsan nagdi-amoy tayo? Right? It happens to us. Alright? So, what does this tell us? God formed man from the dust. Right? Out of the dust, He formed man. He did something else. After forming man, after forming man, what happens next? Bible says He he breathed into man the breath of life. So, what does that tell every single one of us? Man then, is both material and spiritual. Right? Men, every single one of us, the reason why you are way higher than dogs, higher than elephants, the reason why you cannot consider yourself an animal, even if some people are acting like one, is the fact that the Lord has breathed unto you the breath of life. So we're not just material, what we are both material and spiritual. In what sense? You folks know this. The Lord has imprinted upon us the very image of God. And that is what we call imago Dei. Alright? That is what we call imago Dei. The image of God. So what do you have in you? What can we find in Jufi Mark? When you look at Jufi Mark, you see in him the image of God and the breath of life. The image of God and the breath of life. That is why... Every single time we assault a human being, believer or unbeliever, it's also an assault in the very image of God. Are folks following? That is why as well. For those of you here who are in a relationship, for those of you here who are planning to get into a relationship, that is why you don't mess with God's plan in this aspect. That when you are so annoyed, you're so irritated with your husband or your wife, your girlfriend or your fiancé, there's no reason for you ever to heap curses upon them because that man, that woman, beloved, is a son or a daughter of the Lord. And they all, we all bear the very image of God. I say this over and over again in marriage counseling, in premarital counseling, by the way. I look at the husband and I tell the husband, you know what, bro? No matter what happens, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, never ever hurt your wife. Never physically hurt your wife. I also say the same thing to the wives. No matter what happens, don't throw objects at your husband. All right? So I'm just saying that because if we start heaping curses against each other, guess what? You are not each other's enemy. You're actually not each other's enemy. Then every single one of us here basically is created in the image and likeness of God. What does it mean that you were created in the image and likeness of God? Other than the fact that that makes us good looking, come on now, amen? Right? Other than that aspect, what does it mean? It gives us a picture that every single one of us have been given a moral capacity. Moral capabilities, because we are under the rule of God. Every single one of us is under the rule of God. That's God's people or humanity. The next one is God's place. God's place or what we call the garden. This is interesting. If you look at verse 8, verse 8 says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Interesting, isn't it? Right? Right? It says, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. There he put the man whom he had formed. Now, if I start flipping the pages of Genesis, if I go to verse 8, it says, garden in Eden. Isn't it that we thought that, I don't know you, but anyone here who thinks that, oh, why is it called garden in Eden? I thought it's called garden of Eden. Isn't it? Right? Actually, you're right. Whether you call it garden in Eden, okay, you can say that Eden is a place and there's a garden in it. Other people say it's called garden of Eden. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, Genesis chapter 3 maybe calls it garden of Eden. But here's what's interesting whether it's garden of Eden or garden in Eden, in Genesis chapter 13, Ezekiel chapter 27, 28, and Genesis chapter 3, it's actually called the garden of God. All right. So there's no reason to debate whether it's garden in Eden or garden of Eden. At the end of the day, it's actually the garden of the Lord. It's actually the garden of the Lord. So let me put it this way. When you start saying garden of the Lord and scripture emphasizes that. What does it mean when we say garden of the Lord? I want you to understand when I started understanding all of these things my perspective started changing, all right? Every time you get fascinated with God's Word, every time you realize, hey, this is more than just a garden. It's something else. Now, look at this. I have this quote right here. The Garden of Eden was God's dwelling place on the earth, all right? It was the place where the Lord God set something apart on earth, placed man in the garden, and there he would dwell with the man in the garden, all right? So let me ask this for a while. Was the garden a real place? Certainly. All right? Certainly. It was actually a real place. But there's a reason why God has designated a specific garden. All right? A specific garden in the face of the earth. This garden was going to be God's dwelling place in the earth. All right? In the earth. Because we do understand that God created this. And if you remember, God was actually what? Walking in the cool of the day with Adam. All right. So it was his place of communion. It was his place of fellowship. Okay. God intended the garden, the garden of Eden, the garden in Eden, God's garden to be his dwelling place in the earth. Let me explain it further by saying it this way. All right. The garden is first and foremost a temple sanctuary, all right? The garden, first and foremost, is a temple sanctuary. So meaning to say there is a symbolic meaning to this garden right here. So when we think of a garden, what comes into your mind when you think of a garden? You think of grass, flowers, what else? Everything that you can think of, right? All the beautiful things that you can think of. But for the sake of illustration, let me put it this way. So when you start thinking about the garden, God's original design, when God created the garden, it was something like this. This is the earth right here. So this is the heavens right here. And there is a specific place right here where God communes with men. Are folks following? In fact, if you remember your Bible, God says that out of this place, this is actually discipleship, out of this place, they will what? They will export God's glory all around the world. It's kind of like a patch of land where you can actually say, this is heaven on earth. Right? All right, so if you have like heaven and you have earth, God has designated an intersection point, and that is the Garden of Eden, wherein, in this place right here, God communes with man. God walks with men. We may not experience it in some aspect of the world right here, but in this specific place right here, God talks to man, God communes with man, God fellowships with man. It's just a beautiful paradise called Eden. This specific place right here, all the spiritual beings from heaven actually crosses this place right here. No wonder the serpent was there. All right, so this patch of land right here called Eden was a place of communion, was a place of fellowship. Think about the perfect communion, the perfect fellowship that you could ever think of. I mean, like you can talk to God face to face. That's the place right there. Not just that, let me read what Gordon Wenman has to say about this. And I guess this is really accurate. He says, the Garden of Eden is not viewed by the author of Genesis, the way we read it, when you read, oh, garden, okay, I think about my patola, I think about my palaya. That's how we understand it. But the author of Genesis thinks through this differently. It's not viewed by the author of Genesis in place of Mesopotamian farmland. But this is actually what an archetypal sanctuary. That's why I said it's a what? It's a temple sanctuary. It's a temple sanctuary that is a place where God dwells and where man should worship Him. Many of the features of the garden are also found in later sanctuaries. Remember tabernacle? Particularly in the tabernacle of the Jerusalem temple. This parallel suggests that the garden itself is understood as a sort of a sanctuary. If you remember, when man started losing this relationship with God, when we lost our communion, what did God do? He established what we call the tabernacle. He tells every single one of them, he tells every single one of them, here's what's going to happen. You've lost me. You've lost me because of your sinfulness, but I can be found in this place right here. And in this place right here, there's what we call like the Holy of Holies. There's like something in there and that's where God's presence dwells. It's the same way with how the Lord created Eden supposedly. And the tabernacle basically, the tabernacle basically simply mirrors the original intent of God for the garden. It's not just coconut, it's not just olive tree, it's not just fig tree, something else is in there. And that is what? A perfect communion with God. A perfect communion with God. And the innocence of man. When God created man, man was innocent. They were both naked and there was no malice. That's how innocent man was. Moving further, not just that, if you remember the verses that we've just read, remember, it starts talking about what? It starts talking about certain rivers. Right? It starts talking about like Pishon, Euphrates, Tigris. So, why is that so? Why do we have that in the garden? The garden also is significant. Why? Because it is what? It, is, it was rather a source of life. It was a source of life. When God created everything, like what I said, this patch of land right here supposedly supposedly was what was going to export God's glory it's going to be a life giving place for the rest of the world it was supposed to export the glory of God to the ends of the earth it was redeemed in Matthew chapter 28 that's discipleship it was redeemed once again in the book of Revelation so over and over again God has given man the mandate to go on a mission Going back, there were four rivers there. So what do we have here? Rivers, we understand, if you look at the book of Revelation, rivers have a great significance in Scripture. What's the significance of a river when you read your, when you read your Bible? Every time you encounter a river, it is symbolic of what? It is symbolic of life and provision. It is symbolic of life and provision. The garden was teeming with life and provision. Who am I here can say that You know, uh, in the past couple of years, it was kind of tough economically, right? Inflation, COVID, it's like, man, you buy, uh, you cannot buy that much, you know? But, you know, originally, originally, supposedly, supposedly, I'm not saying we're, supposedly we're not supposed to work. No, we are, God has commissioned us to work, but we will not work with the sweat of our brows. Everything would have been provided if man had not, Fallen, all right? Eden right here was the source of life to the rest of the world. It was the source of life for the rest of the world. Now, God creates man and puts him in the garden. The thing here is, God tells man something. You know, folks, remember that, okay? God tells man something. What does God tell the man? He tells the man to to work and keep, isn't it, right? He looks at man, he says, I'm going to place you in the garden and here's your task. You're going to work and keep. All right? You're going to work and keep. So, like what I said, all of you folks who are working right now, God has designed us to work. Amen? Come on now. The Lord has given us from the very beginning of time. The Lord has told every single one of us to work. It is not a result of the fall. All right? It is not a result of the fall. The Lord told the man, he placed the man in the garden, Adam, Adama. Here's your task. Your task is you have to work and keep this garden. You ought to work and keep this garden, which leads me to the next one, which is God's rule or His word. His rule or His word. Look at this. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man from the wilderness and put him in a garden to work it and keep it. All right. So, what were some of the work that Adam was to do? Like, he was going to name animals. He was going to name plants. All right, so Adam was like, this is coconut. <laughs> I don't know. So, but anyway, I'm sure, I'm sure Adam wasn't that complicated compared to like our scientists giving us scientific names. I bet it was so simple in Hebrew. But nonetheless, his job, his work description was to give names. But there's another one. He was also told to what? He was also told to keep, isn't it? To keep basically means to what? To protect. The Lord told Adam to protect the garden. Why? Because God knew, God knew that in this garden right here, there will be entities who will what? Who will display such deception and power to go against the creation of God. So, Adam had a role in the eating of Eve of the fruit. What was that fruit, by the way? We don't know. It wasn't apple. We're pretty certain it's not apple. The Bible doesn't say so. But anyway, instead of protecting the garden, man's responsibility was supposed to protect his wife, to protect the garden, to protect the creation of God. What happened was he succumbed to the temptation. He succumbed to the temptation. He was lured in by what? by the lust of the flesh, the lust of eyes and the pride of life. And this is the sorry state that had happened. And my eye introduced to everyone, the serpent. The serpent comes in. This ancient adversary of God starts deceiving Eve. He starts deceiving Adam. Interesting, he says to the woman, did God actually say? Did God actually say? So, his deception was causing Eve to question the rule of God. Like what I said, they were in the garden under the rule of God. Now, he comes in with a question, throwing question in the mind of Eve. Did God really say? He wants Eve to question the authority of God. He wants Eve to question the rule of God. He smuggles an assumption. He smuggles something in the garden. For the lack of a better term, he smuggles something in the garden. And what does he do? He brings upon Eve's thought the lie that basically says that God's word is subject to our judgment. That's why he said a while ago, remember what we were made of. We were made from the dust of the ground. And he starts questioning, he starts putting question in the mind of Eve. And he starts telling Eve to question the rule of God. He starts telling Eve to what? To subject God's Word into our personal judgment. That's basically what the serpent did. He says, did God actually say? He distorts. Look at how he distorts and misrepresents God's Word. Here's what he says. He says, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. That's what he said. Guess what? This is not what God said. That's how lies work in our lives. He was bringing into question God's character. He wants Eve to question God. And I want you to understand this. I want you to understand this. Men of here today, that's what the devil is doing in your mind. That's how He works. He works through lies. He works through seduction. He works through temptation. He works through temptation, seduction, and deception. He works through these things. He wants you to question God's intent for you. God's intention for your life. He wants you to question God's rule over your life through the years through the centuries this is basically what happened you know Eve responds the woman said to the serpent we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden but God said and she again misquotes you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden what happened there was that what was actually said was that you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden then she said neither shall you touch it lest you die that's not what God said Eve as well lied God simply says, do not eat of it. Eve, like many women, not women from victory. Eve overreacts. Just overreacts. I don't want to get myself in trouble. She overreacts. She adds something to what God simply said. Hey, do not eat of the tree. He says, we should not touch. We should not eat. That's not what God said. Now you see things are spinning off. Spinning out of control. Once you entertain a lie, you come up with a lie yourself. Once you give the devil a foothold in your life, you start seeing yourself in his very grip, in his grasp, and in his power. In fact, he makes a direct contradiction. He tells Eve, you will be like God. What happens here was that he imputes upon Eve a false motive. He imputes upon Eve a false motive He was like saying, hey, you know what? God is holding something back from you. God doesn't actually love you because He's keeping secrets from you. He's holding something back. He doesn't want you to have this. That's why He doesn't want you to eat of this. So what happened here was Eve ate of the fruit, right? What happened afterwards? They lost their innocence. They lost their purity. Bible says they realized they were naked. At that instance, friends, I want you to understand this. After which they were banished out of the garden, this heaven on earth was torn apart. Now we've lost our communion. Now we've lost our fellowship. Now we've lost this sense of being able to hear from God, being able to walk with God in the cool of the day. We've lost it. Right there in the garden, we've lost this very place right there. No wonder, folks, no wonder. If you read scriptures, what would happen is, if you remember Babylon, the Tower of Babel, they started building and building and building. You know what they wanted to do? They wanted to have this. They thought that by human effort, they thought by human effort, they can still achieve this communion. Still achieve this perfect fellowship. And so God looks at them and starts confusing their language. Why? Because this isn't for you. This isn't for you anymore. You sinners, this isn't for you. I'm the one who's going to provide a way. You can provide a way for yourself. You can't have fellowship with me apart from the solution that I'm going to bring to you. Man, over and over again, in centuries past and present, have always wanted to do this. There's always, I want you to understand is every single one of us. I remember when I was in Africa, we, we knocked on the third day. Every single one of us here, if you're an OFW perhaps, remember those times that you feel so homesick. You feel like you want to, man, I just want to go home. I want to be with my family. And I want you to understand is the reason why religion is so prevalent in the world right now, Because in the hearts of men is homesickness. Every single man out there is homesick for something. It's longing for something. They can't seem to describe what it is, but it's actually what homesick for the presence of God. We're all homesick. We want to go back to the loving embrace of God. The perfect fellowship with God. In this world, this is a world marred by sin. You find yourself in the ICU, in SUMC, in the Holy Child. You find yourself not having money for tomorrow. You find yourself in relational tension. And all the more we become homesick. In fact, the Bible tells us that even the world groans for the renewal of all things. And guess what, friends? I'm just so glad that if I go to the Scripture, God tells me the time will come. God, Jesus Himself, will what? Will make all things new. He will make all things new. In fact, what Jesus would accomplish is, He's going to remove this and what? Because of His sacrifice on the cross, this will come back. The perfect communion with God will come back. It will be restored to every single one of us. Before moving on and basically end this, I want us to do a self-diagnosis for a while. And I can find a better time to talk about this. Let's do a self-diagnosis for a while and think about, let's think about Eve. Let's think about Adam. Let's think about sin. And let's ask some of these questions in our minds. Just think about this for a while. Do we ever find ourselves frequently thinking about something Sinful or forbidden? Because for Eve, that's how it started. It started with what? It started with an appeal to the eye. And sometimes for us, something appeals our eyes and we bring it home with us. Do we find ourselves frequently thinking about something sinful or forbidden? Is our imagination possessed by a sinful object attraction or desire? Eve saw that the tree was good for food and desired to make one wise? Do we dwell on sin with private pleasure? When we think about some temptation to sin, do we taste its sweetness with the tongue of our soul? Do we keep rationalizing things, justifying things, do we call sin for what it is? I've talked to people, and sometimes people would tell, Hey, Archie, sorry, I messed up big time. It's true. It's true. You've messed up big time. Now, we didn't just mess up, but we sinned against God big time. know this, right? We don't just make mistakes. We sin. Come on now. We don't just mess up. We sin. First and foremost to God and perhaps our family or someone else. Do We find ourselves arguing against our own conviction or sometimes arguing against the clarity of Scripture. Like what I said a while ago, Scripture is the standard for what is right in all matters of faith, conduct, and values. Makes our life so simple. If you're a Christian, we cannot keep saying words like, it's just a little sin, no one is perfect, God will forgive me, I won't go too far, just this one, I'll give this up soon. The problem with being deceived is, you wouldn't know that you're already deceived. And it starts with subtle ways. I want us to just turn our Bibles far to Ezekiel chapter 47. It says your water flowing through the temple. I'm going to read this for everyone, because I don't want us to miss this out, alright? So, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around and on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on the eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. And then he led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee-deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist-deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in. A river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then He led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And He said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down to Araba and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, and the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh so everything will leave where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Angadi and Anglaim. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be, will be of very many kinds like the fish of the great sea but its swamp and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. But they will bear fruit fresh every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. What have we just read? Friends, it's the restoration of the garden. God was telling Ezekiel time will come I'm going to restore the very garden that we've lost because of the sin of Adam, because of the sin of man Revelation chapter 22 verses 1 to 2 then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God flowing from the throne of God and the lamb through the middle of the street of the sea. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. What we have here in Revelation 22, in Ezekiel chapter 47, is basically what? The life-giving river of God that flows from His very throne. It flows from His very throne. And this is the reality of the kingdom of God established on earth. And I want to end with this. I want you to understand this. In the garden of Eden. In the garden in Eden. In the garden of the Lord. Man, the first Adam, has lost our communion with God. In another garden. In a garden called Gethsemane. The Lord triumphed. And brought God's will to the hills of Calvary to accomplish what the first Adam did and the second Adam did for us more than what the first Adam couldn't do or actually could do. And the second Adam basically accomplished this for us and it brings to us restoration and redemption. Being able to have a fellowship with God once again. Being able to have a harmony with God. Being able to live pure and holy life and stand positionally righteous in the sight of God the Father. You just heard a message from Victory Dumagete. For more messages like these or to access other resources, please visit victorydumagete.org or like our page on Facebook.